Let's turn together to Exodus chapter 3 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. You remember in the story, Moses was saved from death by the hand of God, and he was delivered into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. Then he was nursed by his own mother, and he was raised in Pharaoh's house. And at 40 years old, he began to to recognize the suffering of his people, the nation of Israel. And in his own anger, he rose up and he killed an Egyptian. From fear, he fled to Midian to hide. And there, from grace and kindness, God gave him a wife and a son. And God also gave him the opportunity to serve as a shepherd. And all of this was to prepare him for his work of deliverance that God would use in him. Forty years in Pharaoh's house, 40 years in Midian to prepare him to serve and shepherd God's people Israel. Now, in the first two chapters of Exodus, there's 400 years of oppression captured in two chapters. From here, chapter 3, to the end of the book... You have 38 chapters and one year. So let's give reverent attention to God's word. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. Here's God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, out of, a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, who who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am 
who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to your word and we pray that you would grant us the ministry and the help of your Holy Spirit. Father, that you would nourish your people through the Lord Jesus and by that spirit. And Father, would you be willing as you were willing to use Moses to condescend to use a sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. Father, fill us with abundance in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I suspect after the last two years, some of you have these little handheld thermometers. We have two of them in my house. You, you know, you hold them up to your head, you click the button, and they allegedly take your temperature. Uh, you may think I'm a chilly person just by nature, but the thermometers that I have tell me that I am somewhere between 7 and 9 degrees too chilly to be alive. In fact, these things are so far off that if I was to get a 98.6 degree temperature, I would think something was wrong and I would need to rush to the hospital to be checked out because I would be burning alive. I can't trust the instrument that is meant to measure my condition. Spiritually speaking, there is something in us that plagues us this same way from birth. Sin makes the heart and the conscience unable to accurately measure the condition. So what we're doing is deceiving ourselves from birth. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explained it like this. He said, you will never make yourself feel that you're a sinner because you have a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. There is only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. This is profound. Your sin keeps you from seeing how serious your sin is. Like taking your temperature with a broken thermometer. And, and, and Lloyd-Jones says the only way to fix that problem is to have an encounter with the living God. I suspect many of you who are here today have had such an encounter. God, through his word, God, through his spirit, drew you into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You were converted. And now, that Holy Spirit who dwells in you gives you a much more accurate picture of your own heart. A more true measure of your condition. I sin, I need Christ. And yet, the trouble is I, I still have some remaining sin. My sin nature, though it is weakened, still lies to me. It tells me untruth. Sometimes your sin lies and tells you that your remaining sin is not serious enough for God to be offended. And the practical implication is this. I needed grace to save me in the past, 
But now I wouldn't need grace, really, unless I did something that was pretty bad. And so I'm presuming that God, like the teacher in school, grades on a curve. And if I fall somewhere in the curve better than the other miserable wretches in my class, I'll be fine. But God doesn't grade that way. He grades against his perfect standard of holiness. The second lie, God's holiness means that he is so constantly offended by my actions that he is constantly weary of me and would want utterly nothing to do with me. Some of you are here today and you might be so tired of your own sins that you would presume that God is likewise running out of patience And every sin is a threat to your standing against God. And that is an insurmountable lie, except that you should meet the God of Exodus 3. This is a a passage that tells us truth in the midst of lies. You, You have this, on one hand, an introduction to a holy, majestic God who is nothing short of a consuming fire, And then you have a God who is nothing short of rich in tender mercies and willing with a compassionate heart to draw near to sinners who suffer under the burden of sin. Though you recoil at his holiness, God draws near in compassion. And so we're going to ask two questions in order to delve this text this morning. First, what's in the flame? Secondly, what's in his name? First, what's in the flame? Take a look at verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is eight verses from the time that you first met his father-in-law, who had a different name in chapter 2. His name at the time was Reuel. I think that he was called Reuel because of his role as priest of Midian. Like a number of people in the ancient Near East, Reuel has another name. Now, Reuel means friend of God. I think that's the role in which he served as priest. But this name Jethro means something else. It indicates a kind of abundance, a kind of overflow from God's hand so that people also began to call him Jethro, which means his excellency. Now, people referred to him by two different names, friend of God or one who is worthy of honor because of God's blessing to him. But this isn't really about Jethro's name. It's about God's name, and I think I need to just get Jethro out of the way. We aren't told why Moses went to the west But it's clearly to take care of this flock of his father-in-law. In fact, he leaves Midian and he goes over into the Sinai Peninsula to a mountain that's called Horeb. And while we're talking about things or people who have two names, Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. And a few months from now, Moses will come back to Mount Sinai with a different flock 
with the flock of the people of Israel. Now look at verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. I'm sure he saw the smoke from a distance. And as he gets closer, he sees fire, but he's still a ways off. Now what does Moses notice from a bush that's burning? Bible says he noticed that the bush was not burning up. It kept burning and burning as if it had a constant source of fuel, as if it had endless power, as if it wasn't drawing anything from from the bush, but was rather descended there and his interest is piqued. Take a look at verse three. Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. Now, God brought Moses to this place to speak to him. But first, God says, I'm going to get his attention. In this fire, Moses is going to learn something about God before he ever meets God by name. You know how this works. In a world of social media, you can get to know something about another person long before you ever meet them. Well, from a distance, God reveals himself. What's in the flame? Here is the power. Here is the glory of the infinite, eternal God. A miraculous sign that offers to Moses a glimpse of splendor. This is the God who clearly controls every aspect of creation. And the burning bush symbolizes that here is a God whose presence is utterly and completely self-sufficient. A God who is unquenchable. And his fire is without fuel. No one is behind the bush pouring gasoline on the fire. This is why When Moses tells the people of Israel later about God's character, he says the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. This is why Hebrews 12 says, you should draw near to Christ and be serious about it because your God is a consuming fire. In this bush, you find the answers to the kind of questions that children ask from the very beginning. Who is God? Where did God come from? From all eternity, God simply was. He has no beginning. He has no end. And he is bright and beautiful in such a way that his brightness and beauty never burns out. And so he's intrigued and Moses begins to draw near. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord saw that he turned aside to, to see and God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place you are on for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's not just a bush that caught on fire. This is the angel of the Lord who appears to Moses in a flame. And the, the, the image is deliberate. Throughout the rest of the, the book of Exodus, 
God will appear to the people of Israel in a pillar of fire. And he'll say, follow the pillar of fire. What's the message? When that fire is there, God is present with you. And so, there are times in the Old Testament when this angel of the Lord is spoken of. And sometimes he is a heavenly messenger. But you look at this flame and you go, is there something more going on here? Yes. There is infinitely more than an angel speaking. This is a theophany. The presence of God on earth. It is profound. How do we know that? Because verse 4 says, the Lord saw that he turned aside and God called him out of the bush. This is God present with a man. One pastor called it a visible manifestation of the invisible God. And so for a few brief moments in time and space, the bush is the temple of the living God, the place of his presence on the earth. Someone will wonder, is this a a pre-incarnate glimpse of the second person of the Trinity? Is this the Christ? We don't know for sure. It's a valid question. What we do know is that this Moses is in the presence of God, and it's not the dirt that's holy. It is the God who is present there. God summons Moses by name long before he ever reveals his own name. What's in the flame? His holiness. That's the first thing. Verses 1 through 5 are giving you a sense of that holiness. And verse 5, incidentally, is the first place in the whole Bible where we ever hear the word holy. Holiness. Divine sacredness. I'm borrowing from scholars who are much wiser than me. When the Bible talks about holiness, it speaks of set-apart-ness. His utter separation from us as creation. God is other than everything else he's ever made. This is another way that Christianity is very different from man-made religions. When mankind comes up with the, the concept of a religion, what he does is try to plant God somewhere in the creation. There is the sun. There is my God. There is beauty. There is my God. There is a mountain. There is my God. There is the ocean. There is my God. But not in the Bible. No, in the Bible, God is somewhat, so, so much more infinite than his creation that the creation can simply be spoken into existence. This is partly what makes Exodus chapter 32 that golden calf so blasphemous. Here's a cow. That's your God. It's silly. But this God is not just other than creation. God's holiness means that he is separate from everything that is common and profane. He's separate from everything that is unclean and evil. And so God introduces himself in the flame of a burning bush, and there he communicates his moral perfection, his righteousness, and his purity. One way to cleanse a needle, if you don't have alcohol, is to put it over a flame 
because that flame has the capacity to burn off and kill bacteria and germs. And even in the ancient world, people understood that flames have the capacity to burn off impurities. So here is holiness exemplified in a flame, and it, and it tells of majesty, and it tells of awesomeness. And everywhere in the Bible, when awesomeness and majesty are seen by human eyes, the only response is a humble, desperate, fall on your face, cover your eyes kind of worship. I want to ask you two questions. First, if holiness is the very foundation of God's being, is your worship shaped by his holiness? When you come to worship, are you here to worship a God who is holy? Everyone else around you speaks of this God as if he was familiar and ordinary. As if you are worshiping a God who's low. He's just about sitting in the seat next to you because he's your buddy. Do you have any place in your worship for a God who is totally different from you? Who is holy? Second question. Is your life shaped by a God of holiness? by a God who is awesome in majesty and perfection. I'm not asking if your life is shaped by God's holy law. That is one thing. I'm asking, is your life shaped by the God who does all things perfectly? More often than not, he will do things differently from the way that you would do them if you were on your own. How many of us run in some frenetic pace with an intent to keep the holy God from messing anything up that we might like to accomplish? I don't think anyone would say this, but there is a part of us that lives as though, God, would you just, would you just run the universe? And would you just let me run my own life? Because I really don't want you to infringe on my autonomy. The Bible says you're a vapor. The Bible says that you are a mist that lives today and tomorrow is gone. Can you really govern your life more perfectly? than the living God. The irony, of course, is that most of us are afraid to admit that God's holiness somehow seems more off-putting to us than our own unholiness really is to God. The Bible, Exodus chapter 3, holds a, a tension a tension that's really hard to handle. Here's the tension. Though you recoil at his holiness, God draws near in compassion. So your worship and your life must reflect a God who is holy. 
but your worship and life must also reflect a God who is near. Take a look at verse 6. Here's what God said to Moses. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now, before God introduces himself, he connects his own voice with the God who's done this kind of thing in the past. I'm the same God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A God who frankly couldn't be known, uh, Genesis 11, by people building a tower to get up to me. But I'm the kind of God who revealed myself, Genesis 28, in a ladder down to human beings, down to sinful, flawed, manipulative men. It's really profound. In his very first words, God says, I am the kind of God who's willing to draw near to you. You can't bear my full glory. Here's a burning bush. Moses shields his face. Now look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Did you hear this profound tenderness of the holy God? Our fallen minds can scarcely comprehend a God who is majestic and holy, but also sees the affliction of his people and hears their cry because of these taskmasters and knows their suffering and comes down to deliver them. That is a tension that we can hardly comprehend. Who are these Hebrew people that he is so interested in noticing? And what is their spiritual correlation to us? God calls them a slave nation. The Hebrew people, he, he continually calls them my people. He identifies himself with them, and he talks about them in Egypt, meaning they are still in bondage. They're not free. And then he speaks of their taskmasters and their suffering and their burdens. And yet for some reason, even though they're still currently enslaved, this almighty, infinite, holy God says, I would like to identify myself with the lowest of the low. Those who seemingly can't get out of the hands of Pharaoh to slaves. And so the holy, majestic God says, I'll choose them. Now, please understand, these are not holy people. Within their ranks, there is idolatry and bitterness. There is hatred. There's murder. There's self-righteousness. There's self-pleasure. There's pride. There's lust. There's adultery. There's stealing. There's greed. There's envy. There's conceit. They could not and did not make themselves holy in order to get his attention. They were unholy. And yet God chose to place his love upon them. In fact, there was not one of them among the nation of Israel who decided to choose God. He chose them. And they also didn't have a record 
to commend themselves to him spiritually speaking. What's the spiritual correlation to us? You are not holy. You were not at your birth. You had nothing to commend you to God. And yet he chose to draw near to you. God didn't draw near because of your moral goodness. God drew near, drew near in spite of your moral failures. And there were many. More than that, God says, I'm going to take my people all the way to the promised land, and I will not abandon them. I will not withdraw from them when they continue to be the exact same unholy people that they were when I drew them in. Look at the tenderness of verse 9. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Friends, this is unusual. God's holiness is not damaged by his utter commitment to his people. Not in the least. I wonder if you have a hard time holding and believing this tension in your own spiritual life. Do you feel somehow that you need to bring God down from his holiness in order to receive his grace? Or do you feel the need to forget his tender compassion in order to rightly uphold his holiness? Here's a tension, and you cannot resolve it. And you sure don't seem like you can resolve it at the burning bush. The tension is resolved in Christ. In Christ, God's holy character is upheld and his tender compassion is revealed. Someone might say, you know, God called them out of slavery. I've been called out of slavery to sin. I still sin. I am such a, a repeat offender and I wonder if there's not some of you who, who sit there and imagine God rubbing his head in frustration over your constant failures. The God who saw the Egyptians and their harsh taskmasters and saw slavery and their sufferings is the same God who in Christ looks upon you with a heart of tenderness. He sees Satan. He sees your flesh and those who cruelly want to see you enslaved, and he sees your sin. Sin that you would otherwise not hate, except that he had given you a new heart. And when he sees your sin, he does not see it as a constant frustration to his holiness but rather as a heart-wrenching suffering of one of his precious children. There's a part of me that doesn't want to believe that. There's a part of me that has a hard time reconciling that tension. And yet Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says boldly, where sin increased, 
grace abounded the more. Holiness, expressed and revealed in Jesus Christ, does not cause God to withdraw from you because of your sin, but rather to draw near to you because it is the one balm of healing that alone can heal you from sin's bondage. And that intended balm is there to comfort your heart and draw you again into freedom purchased for you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Though you recoil at his holiness, God draws near in compassion. What's in the flame? Eric, you spoke for 32 minutes about the first point. Oh no, don't panic. What's in the flame? Holiness and nearness. What's in the name? Well, John Calvin wrote as in Institutes of Christian Religion, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and the, and the, and the excuse me, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Moses is facing a burning bush. And to this point, God has said, I am holy. I am willing to draw near. I've done this before. I made myself known to your forefathers. I'm about to make myself known in this generation. I'm about to deliver my people out of slavery and into a land of bounty. But Moses, I didn't save you from the basket. And I did not save you in Midian and walk with you these past 80 years to leave you tending sheep. I saved you to serve me. And this is what it looks like. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And call it what you want. I think this is a really good question. You're sending me to do a work that only you are capable of doing? Yes. Yes, the salvation that was given to you is precisely the summons that I'm giving for you to serve me. Now, the type of service is unique to Moses. But the salvation summons of the Lord to be his servant is not unique at all. This is your identity. Each one of us has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and saved in order to serve the Lord. Friends, the, the God of the burning bush is also the Christ of the cross. He is the God who ransomed his entire existence out of bondage and called you to serve him as a plumber or a pastor, as a salesman or a serviceman or as a student, as an engineer or as an evangelist. The question is not, will you serve him? But rather, how will you serve him in the work that he has created you to do? Moses' identity, servant of the God of the burning bush. Your identity, servant of the God of the cross. What's in God's name? Your identity. It's summarized well in Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? I'm not my own. I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Moses, doubting and uncertain in his own capacity to serve the living God, is fearful. He says, how do I do this? Who am I? And God 
answers Moses in the exact same way he would answer you. Take a look at verse 12. But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Within one year, Moses is going to be back at this mountain. And it's called Mount Sinai. And God says, my presence is the guarantee that you will serve me here. And just watch. I wonder if you can see how this is an identical promise to that which Jesus gave to his disciples and to you. John chapter 20, Jesus comes to his disciples and he summons them into service even as he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm present with you. Go, my peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he breathed on them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. God present with his people as he sends them forth. Let me circle back to Heidelberg Catechism question one. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. You belong to Jesus Christ. What's in God's name? Your identity? Which includes a call to service and his guaranteed presence with you, which is why Jesus must be called Emmanuel, because God is with us. What else is in God's name? God's identity. Verse 13, when Moses said to God, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout their generations. God's identity is bound up in his name, and this is his name, Yahweh. And in your Bible, it uses a small version of four capital letters, L-O-R-D, to tell you that the translators are taking the name Yahweh and putting on it Lord. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And one scholar explained it like this. God is who he is, and that's all there is to it. Yahweh is self-existent. He does not depend on anyone else for his being. He is the God of creation who sustains all things by his power. Yahweh is a God who never changes. He is to be known and remembered forever as the God who is. Now, if you will flip the coin over, you will recognize the application. He is God. And you are not. Moses, if, if the people ask you who I am, you tell them, I am. And nobody else is. And that's exactly how Jesus ruffled the feathers of those religious, spiritually elite. He said, I'm God. And you're not. 
And there is no salvation apart from me. Jesus said, I am the great I am. The incarnation, which is the physical answer to the spiritual problem. Though you recoil at his holiness, God draws near in compassion. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you will bind your word to our hearts that we might know you as the great I am and that we might know Christ as that same divine, eternal God. Thank you for drawing near, for we could otherwise never do so. We pray that you will help our song. We might worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.